Welcome to The Quiet Corner Bedtime Stories. My name is Annie. Before our next episode from What Katie Did is available on Tuesday, we have a bonus episode tonight, read by our guest reader. He will be reading part one of Silver Blaze from the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. Welcome to the quiet corner where we breathe new life into classic tales and where no one is ever too old for a bedtime story. You're here with Eamon Reading and tonight we'll be delving into the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes with part one of Silver Blaze. I am afraid, Watson, that I shall have to go, said Holmes as we sat down together to our breakfast one morning. Go? Where to? to Dartmoor, to King's Pyland. I was not surprised. Indeed, my only wonder was that he had not already been mixed up in this extraordinary case, which was the one topic of conversation through the length and breadth of England. For a whole day my companion had rambled about the room with his chin upon his chest and his brows knitted, charging and recharging his pipe with the strongest black tobacco, and absolutely deaf to any of my questions or remarks. Fresh editions of every paper had been sent up by our newsagent, only to be glanced over and tossed down into a corner. Yet silent as he was, I knew perfectly well what it is over which he was brooding. There was but one problem before the public which could challenge his powers of analysis, and that was the singular disappearance of the favourite for the Wessex Cup and the tragic murder of its trainer. When therefore he suddenly announced his intention of setting out for the scene of the drama, it was only what I had both expected and hoped for. I should be most happy to go down with you if I should not be in the way, said I. My dear Watson, you would confer a great favour upon me by coming, and I think that your time will not be misspent, for there are points about this case which I promise to make it absolutely a unique one. We have, I think, just time to catch our train at Paddington, and I will go further into the matter upon our journey. You would oblige me by bringing your very excellent field glass. And so it happened that an hour or so later I found myself in the corner of the first-class carriage flying along en route for Exeter, while Sherlock Holmes, with his sharp and eager face framed in his ear-flat travelling cap, dipped rapidly into a bundle of fresh papers which he had procured in Paddington. We had left reading far behind us before he thrust the last of them under his seat and offered me his cigar case. We are going well, said he, looking out of the window and glancing at his watch. Our rate is at present 53 and a half miles an hour. I have not observed the quarter mile post, said I. Nor have I but the telegraph posts upon this line are 60 yards apart and the calculation is a simple one. I presume that you have already looked into the matter of the murder of John Straker and the disappearance of Silver Blaze. I have seen what the telegraph and the chronicle have to say. It is one of those cases where the art of the reasoner should be used rather for the sifting of details than for the acquiring of fresh evidence. The tragedy has been so uncommon so complete and of such a personal importance to so many people that we are suffering from a plethora of surmise, conjecture 
and hypothesis. The difficulty is to detach the framework of fact, of absolute, undeniable fact, from the embellishment of the theorists and the reporters. Then having established ourselves upon this sound basis, it is our duty to see what inferences may be drawn, which are the special points upon which the whole mystery turns. On Tuesday evening I received telegrams from both Colonel Ross, the owner of the horse, and from Inspector Gregory, who is looking after the case and inviting my cooperation. Tuesday evening, I exclaimed, and this is Thursday morning. Why did you not go down there yesterday? Because I made a blunder, my dear Watson, which is, I am afraid, more common of an occurrence than anyone would think who only knew me through your memoirs. The fact is that I would not believe it possible that the most remarkable horse in England could long remain concealed, especially in so sparsely inhabited place as the north of Dartmoor. From hour to hour yesterday I expected to hear that he had been found, that his abductor was the murderer of John Straker. When, however, another morning had come, and I found that beyond the arrest of young Fitzroy Simpson, nothing had been done, I felt that it was time for me to take action. Yet in some ways, I feel that yesterday has not been wasted. You have formed a theory then? At least I have a grip on the essential facts of the case. I shall enumerate them to you. For nothing clears up a case so much as stating it to another person. And I can hardly expect your cooperation if I do not show you the position from which we start. I lay back against the cushions, puffing my cigar, while Holmes, leaning forward with his long, thin forefinger, checking off the points upon the palm of his left hand, gave me a sketch of the events which had led to our journey. Silver Blaze, said he, is from the Asomni stock and holds as brilliant a record as his famous ancestor. He is now in his fifth year and has brought in turn each of the prizes of the turf to Colonel Ross, his fortunate owner. Up to the time of the catastrophe, he was first favorite for the Wessex Cup, the betting being three to one on. He has always, however, been a prime favorite with the racing public and has yet never disappointed them. So that even at short odds, enormous sums of money have been laid upon him. It is obvious, therefore, that there were many people who had the strongest interest in preventing Silver Blaze from being there at the fall of the flag next Tuesday. This fact was of course appreciated at King's Pyland, where the Colonel's training stable is situated. Every precaution was taken to guard the favorite. The trainer, John Straker, is a retired jockey who rode in Colonel Ross's colors before he became too heavy for the weighing chair. He had served the Colonel for five years as a jockey and for seven as a trainer and has always shown himself to be a zealous and honest servant. Under him, there are three lads, for the establishment was a small one containing only four horses in all. One of these lads sat up each night at the stable while the others slept in the loft. All three bore excellent characters. John Straker, who is a married man, lives in a small villa about 200 yards from the stable. He has no children. He keeps one maid servant and is comfortably off, 
The country around is very lowly, but about half a mile to the north there is a small cluster of villas which have been built by a Tavistock contractor for the use of invalids and others who may wish to enjoy the pure Dartmoor air. Tavistock itself lies two miles to the west, while across the moor, about two miles distance, is the larger training establishment of Capleton, which belongs to Lord Backwater, and is managed by Silas Brown. In every other direction, the moor is a complete wilderness, inhabited only by a few roaming gypsies. Such was the general situation last Monday night when the catastrophe occurred. On that evening, the horses had been exercised and watered as usual, and the stables were locked up at nine o'clock. Two of the lads walked up to the trainer's house, where they had supper in the kitchen, while the third, Ned Hunter, remained on guard. At a few minutes after nine, the maid, Edith Baxter, carried down to the stables his supper, which consisted of a dish of curried mutton. She took no liquid, as there was a tap for water in the stables and it was the rule that the lad on duty should drink nothing else. The maid carried a lantern with her, as it was dark, and the path ran across the open moor. Edith Baxter was within thirty yards of the stables when a man appeared out of the darkness and called her to stop. As he stepped into the circle of yellow light thrown by the lantern, she saw that he was a person of gentlemanly bearing, dressed in a grey suit of tweed with a cloth cap, he wore gaiters and carried a heavy stick with a knob on it. She was most impressed, however, by the extreme pallor of his face and by the nervousness of his manner. His age, she thought, would be rather over thirty than under it. Can you tell me where I am? he asked. I had almost made up my mind to sleep on the moor when I saw the light of your lantern. You are close to King's Pylond at the trailing stables she said. Oh, indeed. What a stroke of luck, he cried. I understand that a stable boy sleeps there alone every night. Perhaps that is his supper which you are carrying to him. Now I am sure that you would not be too proud to earn the price of a new dress, would you? He took a piece of white paper folded up out of his waistcoat pocket. See that the boy has this tonight, and you shall have the prettiest frock that money can buy. She was frightened by the earnestness of his manner, and ran past him to the window through which she was accustomed to hand the meals. It was already open, and Hunter was seated at the small table inside. She had begun to tell him of what had happened, when the stranger came up again. Good evening, said he, looking through the window. I wanted to have a word with you. The girl has sworn that as he spoke, she noticed the corner of the little paper packet protruding from his closed hand. What business have you here? asked the lad. It's business that may put something in your pocket, said the other. You've two horses in the Wessex Cup, Silver Blaze and Bayard. Let me have the straight tip and you won't be a loser. Is it a fact that the weights Bayard could give the other a hundred yards and five furlongs? And that the stable have put their money on him? So you're one of those damned touts cried the lad. I'll show you how we serve them at King's Pyland. He sprang up and rushed across the stable to unloose the dog. The girl fled away to the house, but as she ran she looked back and she saw the stranger was leaning through the window. A minute later, however, when Hunter rushed out with the hound, he was gone, 
and though the lad ran all around the buildings, he failed to find any trace of him. One moment, I asked. Did the stable boy, when he ran out with the dog, leave the door unlocked behind him? Excellent, Watson. Excellent, murmured my companion. The importance of the point struck me so forcibly that I sent a special wire to Dartmoor yesterday to clear up the matter. The boy locked the door before he left it. The window, I may add, was not large enough for a man to go through. Hunter waited until his fellow grooms had returned, and then he sent a message to the trainer and told him what had occurred. Straker was excited at hearing the account, although he does not seem to have quite realised its true significance. It left him, however, vaguely uneasy. And Mrs. Straker, waking at one in the morning, found that he was dressing. In reply to her inquiries, he said that he could not sleep on account of his anxiety about the horses, and that he intended to walk down to the stables to see that all was well. She begged him to remain at home, as she could hear the rain pattering against the windows, but in spite of her entreaties, he pulled on his Macintosh and left the house. Mrs. Straker awoke at seven in the morning to find that her husband had not yet returned. She dressed herself hastily, called out to the maid, and set off for the stables. The door was open, and inside, huddled together upon a chair, Hunter was sunk in a state of absolute stupor. The favourite stall was empty, and there were no signs of his trainer. The two lads who slept in the chafe-cutting loft, above the harness room, were quickly roused. They had heard nothing during the night, for they were both sound sleepers. Hunter was obviously under the influence of some powerful drug, and no sense could be gotten out of him. He was left to sleep it off, while the two lads and the two women ran out in search of the absentees. They still had hopes that the trainer had for some reason taken out the horse for an early exercise, but on ascending the knoll near the house, from which all the neighbouring walls were visible, not only could they see no signs of the horse, but they perceived something which warned them that they were in the presence of tragedy. About a quarter of a mile from the stables, John Straker's overcoat was flapping from a furze bush. Immediately beyond, there was a bowl-shaped depression on the moor, and at the bottom of this was found the dead body of the unfortunate trainer. His head had been shattered by a savage blow from some heavy weapon, and he was wounded in the thigh, where there was a long, clean cut, inflicted evidently by some sharp instrument. It was very clear, however, that Straker had defended himself vigorously against his assailants, for in his right hand he held a small knife, which was clotted with blood up to the handle. One in his left, he grasped a red and black silk cravat, which was recognised by the maid as having been worn on the preceding evening by the stranger who had visited the stables. Hunter, on recovering from his stupor, was also quite positive as to the ownership of the cravat. He was equally certain that the same stranger had, while standing at the window, drugged his curried mutton, and so deprived the stables of their watchman. As to the missing horse, there were abundant proofs in the mud which lay at the bottom of the fatal hollow that he had been there at the time of the struggle. But from that morning he was disappeared. And although a large reward has been offered, all of the gypsies of Dartmoor are on the alert. 
no news has come of him. Finally, an analysis has shown that the remains of his supper left by the stable lad contain an appreciable quantity of powdered opium. While the people of the house partook of the same dish on the same night, none of them had any ill effect. And those are the main facts of the case, stripped of all surmise and stated as boldly as possible. I shall now recapitulate what the police have done on the matter. Inspector Gregory, to whom the case has been committed, is an extremely competent officer. Were he but gifted with imagination, he might rise to great heights in his profession. On his arrival, he promptly found and arrested the man upon whom suspicion naturally rested. There was little difficulty in finding him, for he was thoroughly well known in the neighbourhood. His name, it appears, was Fitzroy Simpson. He was a man of excellent birth and education, who had squandered a fortune upon the turf, and who now lived by doing a little quiet and genteel bookmaking in the sporting clubs of London. An examination of his betting book shows that bets to the amount of £5,000 had been registered by him against the favourite. On being arrested, he volunteered the statement that he had come down to Dartmoor in the hope of getting some information about King's Pyland and its horses, and also about Desborough, the second favourite, which was in the charge of Silas Brown at the Capleton stables. He did not attempt to deny that he had acted as described upon the evening before, but declared that he had no sinister designs, and that he had simply wished to obtain first-hand information. When confronted with the cravat, he turned very pale, and was utterly unable to account for its presence in the hand of the murdered man. His wet clothing showed that he had been out in the storm the night before, and his stick, which was a Penang lawyer, weighted with lead, was just such a weapon as might, by repeated blows, have inflicted the terrible injuries to which the trainer had succumbed. On the other hand, there was no wound upon his person, while the state of Straker's knife would show that one at least of his assailants must have had his mark upon him. But there you have it, all in a nutshell, Watson. And if you can give me any insight, I shall be infinitely obliged to you. I had listened to great interest to the statement, which Holmes, with his characteristic clearness, had laid before me. Though most of the facts were familiar to me, I had not sufficiently appreciated their relative importance, nor their connection with each other. Is it not probable, I suggested, that the incised wound upon Straker may have been caused by his own knife in the convulsive struggles which follow any brain injury? It is more than possible, it is probable, said Holmes. In that case, one of the main points in favour of the accused disappears. And yet, said I, even now I fail to understand what the theory of the police can be. I'm afraid that whatever theory we state has very grave objections to it, returned my companion. The police imagine, I take it, that this Fitzroy Simpson, having drugged the lad, and having in some way obtained a duplicate key, opened the stable door and took out the horse, with the intention, apparently, of kidnapping him altogether. His bridle is missing, so that Simpson must have put it on. Then having left the door open behind him, he was leading the horse away over the moor. 
when he was either met by or overtaken by the trainer. A row naturally ensued. Simpson beat out the trainer's brains with his heavy stick, and without receiving any injury from the small knife, which Straker used in self-defense, and then the thief either led the horse onto some secret hiding place, or else it may have bolted during the struggle, and be wandering out on the moors. And that is the case as it appears to the police. And improbable as it is, all other explanations are even more improbable still. However, I shall very quickly test the matter once I am upon the spot. And until then, I really cannot see how we can get much further in our present position. Thank you.